Good morning. Actually, it's afternoon, isn't it? Just. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you again. And we meet in daylight today, which is going to be good. John the Baptist was a bit of a crazy guy. I don't know whether you know much about him. He lived out in the desert. He uh, ate locusts and wild honey. I presume uh, that's not the sort of diet you're after. He wore uh, a leather belt around his waist. In fact, it seems like that's all he wore, which is a bit strange. He called himself the forerunner, the preparer. He talked about somebody more powerful than him coming after him. He just baptised with water. The one coming after would baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. He would bring the kingdom of God. But John the Baptist has been languishing in prison for a while as Jesus begins his public ministry. And in Luke chapter 7, John sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. This is Luke 7 verse 18. Sorry, nine, uh, verse 22. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. I need to find the right place. 18. John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus was doing. He called two of them and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? As John's clearly disappointed with Jesus and confused as to what's going on. He thought Jesus would bring the kingdom of God, that Jesus was the one, the king, the Messiah. But all he seems to hear about is lots of talk. Where is this kingdom? If the kingdom was to liberate prisoners, the faithful people of God locked away, well, John's still locked away. Have you ever wondered whether this Christianity thing is all just talk, just wishful thinking? Certainly the people in psychology and anthropology tend to think of religion that way. Religion is just a human invention to cope with our fear of death. Freud said that the belief in God was an illusion to satisfy the infantile need for a powerful father figure. That's all Christians are. Marx said religion was the opiate of the people, a drug to give the illusion of happiness so the powerful can keep the masses under control. And that's sort of the question John is raising. Is it just all talk? Is there any substance? Has Jesus really changed anything? It's a good question to ask. And Jesus responds. They come and ask the question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, verse 21, sicknesses and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. See what Jesus says? He says, go and tell John what you see, what you've witnessed. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, lepers are being cleansed, even the dead are being raised. The power of God is being unleashed in the lives of people. The blessings of God's rule are breaking into people's lives and their lives are being changed. In fact, just before this, Jesus has brought a a widow's son back to life. He he comes across this funeral procession and there's a widow there whose son has just died. She's in mourning and Jesus says to her, don't cry. And he goes up to the the briar that's carrying the, the son and he addresses a dead corpse and says, young man, 
I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave gave him back to his mother. An incredible thing to do. Jesus takes the initiative. Something powerful happens. Death that we feel so impotent in the face of is suddenly nothing in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus describes what he's doing in the words of Isaiah 35, if you want to look them up in your own time. One of the promises that the prophet Isaiah makes in the name of God of what the kingdom will be like. The blind will see, the lame will leap. And Jesus says, say to John, it's not just words, there's action. Significant action that answers your question. Am I the person? Has the kingdom come? Well, tell him what you see. And Jesus goes on in verse 24 to 28 of Luke uh, chapter 7. He says, what did you go out to witness with John the Baptist? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out? Well, verse 26, a prophet, yes, I tell you, but more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you, quoting from Malachi chapter 3. That is, God says before he comes, he'll send a messenger. That's who John was. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. If John's unsure about Jesus, Jesus is crystal clear about John. He was the greatest prophet of them all, who prepared the way for God to come, the messenger. But then he says, but John, great as he was, is less than anybody who's in the kingdom. The most insignificant in the kingdom the child who just scrapes in is in a more privileged position than John ever was. Of course, John belongs to the era of promise, of preparation, of waiting for the kingdom. But the age of fulfilment has come now. And so anybody who's in the kingdom is greater even than John. It's not just that Jesus can pull a few rabbits out of a hat, but that his actions point to a whole new state of affairs in the world. The turning point of history has arrived, says Jesus. Jesus is not just another great prophet with words to speak, but the king in God's kingdom. And Jesus says his actions are evidence of that, that the kingdom has arrived and that he's the king. So let's have a look at some of these actions of Jesus. Because I think in anybody's book, what Jesus does is remarkable. The people who were there and who saw it are constantly sort of just in this state of shock. They're amazed. It's jaw drop sort of stuff. Back in chapter 5, remember that incident where the paralytics let down through the roof? Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a bit of squabble. How can he say that? Jesus says, well, I'll show you I've got the authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And the paralytic gets up and walks. And we're told everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We've seen remarkable things today. And I reckon if you'd been there that day, you would have been saying that. See, to hear a, heal a paralytic publicly in front of everybody is no small thing. And what happens when you're paralysed? At very least, all your muscles atrophy, don't they? Whatever caused the paralysis, you're no longer able to walk. The, if you've ever broken uh, a, leg in your, a bone in your leg, you'll know that, that sort of feeling, don't you? You have a cast on for a while, you hobble around in crutches. When they take the cast off, you can't immediately get up and and play soccer, can you? You've got to gradually rebuild the muscles again. They've all atrophied. This paralytic 
in front of everybody, not just has his paralysis healed, but his muscles recreated so he can get up and pick up his mat and walk home in view of everybody. Something incredible had happened to his body. People were amazed. We've already seen Jesus raising the dead. He comes across this funeral procession. If you've ever been to a funeral, I presume it has never crossed your mind to walk up to the coffin, take the lid off, and say to the corpse, come on, get up. Because you know you can't do it, can you? You can't pull that off. You never think you could pull it off. But Jesus does it, and, and there's nothing sort of prepared about it. It just happens that he comes across this funeral procession. But he knows he can do it, and he does it. And a dead boy is alive again for his mum. He's out on a, a, the lake uh, with his disciples in the boat, and a storm comes up. He's asleep. They wake him up and say, don't you care if we're going to drown? And Jesus says to the, the, the wind, just calm down, will you? And the waves shut up. And they do. Now, if you're not willing to try the funeral one, try this one sometime. I get on the, the catch the ferry to Rotnest on a good stormy winter afternoon when the wind's really up and the waves are coming. See if you can do it. I mean, my, my advice is don't let anybody hear what you're trying because they'll think you're mad. And I bet you can't pull it off. The disciples in the boat after Jesus did it were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. They knew something remarkable had happened. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 5, and we're told the parents were just stunned. They were astonished. The range of what Jesus does in these what we call miracles is incredible. The scope, he's not a specialist. It's not as if he can do something about short legs, but he can't do anything about amputees. He can do something about paralysis, but skin diseases is beyond him. Whatever turns up, he can do it. And he does it to things that we're completely helpless in the face of. Now, some people say, oh, but modern science can explain how those sort of things happen. Actually, modern science just makes it even more remarkable, doesn't it? Because of our modern science and and our understanding of physiology, we know what it takes to heal a a paralytic. We know that it means that the recreation of all the muscle tone. We know more than them, yes, but it doesn't explain it away. It just makes it even more amazing. And what strikes people as Jesus does these things is the authority with which he does it. Back in chapter 4, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum, and there's a guy there with an evil spirit. Now, Jesus has been teaching, and people are stunned by the authority of his teaching. But he could just be words. But there's this guy with an evil spirit, he's crying out, and sort of like the storm, Jesus just says to the spirit, shut up, get out. And it does. A spirit just salutes and says, yes, sir, and it's out of there. That's authority that I've never come across. In chapter 7, a centurion comes to Jesus. A servant is sick back in his home. And he says to Jesus, I know what authority is. I'm a man who wields authority. I say, do this, and the soldiers do it. And I recognize that you've got that sort of authority. Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the words, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, go home. It's all done. And it was. Now, that's authority I've never seen. The centurion knew that Jesus had that sort of authority. Or in chapter 8, Jesus is confronted with this man who's 
who's, in our words, we'd say stark raving mad. He's out in the, amongst the tombs, living out there, thrown out of the village because he's dangerous. They try to chain him up, but he just breaks the chains. He's got superhuman strength. He, he's naked. He cuts himself. He's he, sort of foaming at the mouth, I guess, is what you imagine. And Jesus says, you know, sort of, who are you to the spirits? And they say, we're legion. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. And the, the, the spirits begged Jesus not to throw them out of the, the area. Now, Jesus has no high-tech ghost-busting weapons. It's just Jesus. All he's got is his own word. But he says to them, go. And they go. And the spirits destroy a whole uh, herd of pigs. He has that sort of authority in every area of life. He really is like a king. When he says something is going to happen, it happens. When he commands something to happen, it will happen. But why does he do these miracles? What's going on with Jesus? Well, one of the clear uh, reasons is simply compassion. In chapter 5, a leper comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He says, I am willing. He's moved by the plight of the leper and he willingly does something for him. Again, in chapter 18, a blind man is crying out to Jesus, have mercy on me, Jesus. And all his friends around, the people in the village, they're trying to shush shush him up and say, no, leave Jesus alone. Don't, Don't bother him. But Jesus overhears it. He says, come, what do you want? He says, I want to see. And Jesus says, go, see. There's this genuine compassion. He comes across suffering in our world, the effects of sin and evil, and he has compassion on people. Now, I hope that you feel some of that compassion. You see people in desperate states, desperate illness. You see people in wheelchairs, and you're moved with compassion at their plight. But the difference is Jesus can do something about it. We normally can't, can we? We might alleviate some of the symptoms, but Jesus can cure the problem in a way that none of us ever have been able to. Two things become clear. There's a willingness on Jesus' part to do something about it and a capacity to do something extraordinary about it. But there's another dimension to what Jesus is doing in his miracles, which we see in chapter 11, the passage that Felix read to us. There's an element of confrontation with Satan and the spiritual powers of our world. It was characteristic of Jesus that he did what we call exorcisms, Casting demons out of different people. And for many of us, I think, the whole idea is fairly strange to our ears. We don't think of our world as inhabited by demons and spirits. And we read of Jesus driving out demons. We're, we're very tempted to explain it away. Maybe people back then were just you know, really superstitious. They thought there were spirits under every chair, in every tree. There were such primitive people. Well, friends, that's a bias that does not bear up. People of those days were like us. They understood the difference between physical illness and spiritual forces. They had a a clearer understanding that there were spiritual forces than many of us us had. But they weren't primitive, superstitious people. The Bible teaches us that the spiritual realm is real. Satan is real. He's a real person with spiritual power opposed to God who holds sway in this world deceiving humanity into rebelling against God. That is, there's a web of evil in which all of us are trapped to some extent. 
we can't not do evil. And as we do evil, we bring ourselves under God's judgment, under the condemnation we deserve of death and hell. And Satan has spun that web. In the lives of some people, that satanic activity is more explicit, what what is called possession by demons. And God had warned Israel, his people, that their idolatry and sin would lead not just to exile, but captivity to demons. We read the New Testament and often we're surprised at how prevalent uh, the, the demons are. That was part of the judgment of God. It's not saying that's usual across the world. Jesus has been publicly driving out these demons. And what he's doing requires explanation. It begs someone to come up with, how's he doing that? Notice even the opponents of Jesus, those who don't like him, those who want to explain away what he's doing, acknowledge, he's, acknowledge that he's doing extraordinary things. And it's interesting that there's other documents. For example, in the Talmud, the, uh, the sort of official Jewish documents uh, about themselves from the time, Jesus is classified as a sorcerer. That is, they don't deny he's doing extraordinary things. They just attribute his power to Satan, to satanic power rather than God. And that's what happens here, verse 15. Some of them say, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, by Satan himself, he's driving out demons. They have their explanation. But Jesus points out how illogical and stupid that explanation is. Verse 17, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drove out demons by Beelzebul. I don't know whether you've followed the logic, but let me give you an analogy. Imagine that Indonesia invades Australia. So if you're Indonesian here, I'm not trying to pick on you, just just go with me with with the imagination. So Indonesia is invading Australia, the planes are coming over, troops are landing up in Darwin, down the west coast of Australia, pouring in. Now imagine if Bill Shorten stands up in Parliament and says, this is all a Tony Abbott plot. (laughs) Well, that would be Tony Abbott both fighting against them and fighting for them. That's dumb, isn't it? Who, Who would ever do such a thing? It just can't be real, can it? Well, that's the sort of explanation they're giving. Satan is both casting himself out to, to further his own, own purposes. That, that can't happen. Well, if it's not Satan, who is behind this? Because there are extraordinary events. There is some sort of supernatural power. Jesus says it must be God. Verse 20, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he paints a picture in verses 21 and 22. And a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house. His possessions are safe, aren't they? Somebody's in their castle. They've got all their weapons. Everyone's locked out. Then their possessions are safe. Whatever they own, all their gold and silver and whatever else, they're fine. But 22, when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. You see people walking out of that castle, carrying his gold and silver out. What do you conclude? The strong man who's guarding the castle must have been overpowered. (laughs) Otherwise, he'd stop them, wouldn't he? You you can't take, plunder his goods unless you first overcome him. Do you see the parallel? If If Satan has people captive, if he has them in his own possession, but they're being liberated by Jesus, then it's clear what's happened. Jesus has overpowered Satan. He's come into his kingdom, into his castle. 
and has bound him up. There's been a whole shift in the power structures of the universe, which is evidenced by Jesus casting out demons. If you start to think back, well, where's Jesus sort of confronted Satan in the past? What's been happening? Well, it, it actually began right back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The first thing Jesus does after he's baptized is what? He's driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Back in chapter 4 of Luke. Satan comes and throws everything, everything including the kitchen sink, it would seem, at Jesus. But it's an interesting sort of battle because it's not a battle of power. They don't do an arm wrestle. Come on, put your arm up. Let's see who's strongest. It's not that sort of super, super power battle where they're throwing missiles at each other. Let's see who's got the most power at their disposal. No, Satan tempts Jesus. Satan tries to dislodge the loyalty of Jesus to his father. He provokes him with extreme temptation. And the question is, will Jesus buckle? Because if Jesus buckles, the kingdom is lost. There will be no kingdom of God if the king of God's kingdom bows his knee to Satan, to evil. And if the fate of the kingdom hangs in the balance, then the destiny of the universe hangs in the balance. And Jesus does good. He does very good. In the face of that provocation, he remains totally loyal to his father, even though he might be starving to death. And Jesus sees his ministry, in that sense, as the ongoing battle with Satan. He wins that first significant round. And he sees his ministry as he casts demons out of people, as he heals in chapter 13 a woman who's been crippled for 18 years. When he's asked to explain, he says, well, she's been held captive by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it a good thing that I liberate her, even if it's the Sabbath day? And Satan is powerless to stop Jesus liberating his possessions. Does that mean all the healings of Jesus are directly about satanic uh, uh, power? No, not directly, but indirectly. Because all suffering and sickness in our world is ultimately the result of evil that infects every aspect of human experience. The kingdom of God comes to undo those effects. And the climax of Jesus' confrontation with Satan and evil comes in his death and resurrection. Jesus is clear. His death and resurrection is what must happen for him to fulfill his mission, for the kingdom of God to be established, for the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people to be defeated once and for all. And it happens because his death is a sacrifice for sin. The penalty for sin, the penalty that involves death and hell, is paid in full. Our penalty. And so he secures our forgiveness. Now that forgiveness he's been dispensing far and wide, now we know why he can do it, because he himself dies to secure that forgiveness. And as forgiveness is secured, the power of Satan evaporates. He short-circuits it. Because Satan's power comes from his activity of enticing us to sin and then accusing us before God, saying, God, look, this person, this creation of yours has rebelled against you. Condemn them. That's what they deserve. But now, with forgiveness, even if Satan succeeds, even if Satan gets me to sin, the accusations no longer stick. Everything he might accuse me of, true though it might be, Jesus stands up and says, I died for that. 
I died for that. It's all been paid for. And Satan has nothing more to say. And Jesus rose to life again, bringing an end to the reign of death. Up until Jesus, death has held sway in all of human history over every human that ever lived. We all live and die. Whether it's one year or 70 years, we all die. That relentless march trampling everyone underfoot until Jesus. He came back from the dead, conquering death itself. You could see the death and resurrection of Jesus in a sense as the great crossroads at which God and humans and Satan and the law collide in this head-on four-way collision. Satan pushing Jesus to the limits of temptation to break his faith in God his Father and make him another failed Adam. But he loses Jesus forever. He sees a son of Eve win through to reclaim the lost kingdom of God and human beings. We see human beings proudly, supposedly, about God's work, but unmasked as what we really are, God murderers, desperate to resist his intrusion into our space. We see God in Jesus bearing the angry rebellion without retaliation, praying for the forgiveness even of those who kill him. He's finally seen for what he really is, not a slave driver and spoiler of our fun, but our lover, our champion, prepared to go to the utmost limits of humiliation and death to reconcile us to himself. The law crying out for justice against human beings whose sins are heaped up to the sky is satisfied as the king offers his own life for the sins of his people. And they pass forgiven into the now established kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Christ. His death and resurrection are the means of securing the forgiveness that he's been dispensing the means of breaking the hold of Satan over the lives of all. His death is at the heart of the way in which the kingdom of God is established. So is Jesus all talk and no action? No. Jesus points to his miracles, his exorcisms, his healings, his raising from the dead to say the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let me try and give you an illustration. Imagine I tell you, lunch today is going to be amazing. The lamb cutlets they've been preparing for you, cater girls, they're in the oven. They're starting to smell so delicious, just absolutely succulent. They're going to be on your plate in half an hour. You'll be able to eat them. Now, I've probably done you a terrible disservice at this point. Your saliva glands are starting to work over time. That rumbling in the stomach you'd been totally unaware of before, captivated by the talk, is suddenly just all you can feel. That's heartless torture, isn't it? Well, it's heartless torture if it's not going to happen. And it might cross your mind, maybe this is just all talk. <laughs> maybe there is no lunch in the oven. Tim's just trying to talk it up. Maybe there isn't a fulfilment to his promises. And you're starting to get mad at me. But imagine that up in the back row, somebody stands up and says, I've got one already, and boy, it's great. And somebody else in the third row stands up and says, yeah, I've got one too. Somebody else over there stands up, yeah, I've got one. Suddenly that changes the picture, doesn't it? Because some people have already experienced lunch. They've already had a foretaste of it. (laughs) And so you know that it's real. You know that it's coming. Well, that's sort of what Jesus' miracles are like. People here, there are experiencing the kingdom of God liberated from their illness, 
the power of evil being broken in their lives one way or another. Some of them even experiencing the full forgiveness that, had come th- that would finally come through Jesus' death and resurrection. And you say, yes, the kingdom has already started and therefore it will come. The now is here, therefore the not yet will come. We need to think carefully, though, about Jesus' miracles. Some want to dismiss them as just myths and legends. We've decided beforehand that those things don't happen, they can never happen, so people must just have made them up. But frankly, I'm convinced that the historical evidence is against you if you take that approach. You're not deciding because there's no evidence, you're deciding because you've already decided those sort of things don't happen. Interestingly, people say to me, come on, Tim, if, you want, if God's real, he should do something spectacular in the world. And then when God does do something spectacular, they say it can't happen. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too, which is true. The New Testament cries out again and again, they actually happened. Amazing, jaw-dropping things happen. On the other hand, some people want to see these miracles as introducing what should now be normal. It should be happening everywhere. Miracles like this should be happening here in Australia all the time because Jesus came to heal and we continue his work by healing everybody now. But that is to misunderstand Jesus and his miracles. Was Jesus trying to heal everybody in Palestine in his lifetime? No. He only healed a few, well, a few hundred probably, but many people were never healed by Jesus. And he even at one point turned his back on those coming to be healed because he said, I've come not to heal but to preach. In that sense, they weren't central to what he was on about. We'll explore that a bit more tonight. Or ask it a different way. Did Jesus raise every dead person to life? No. As far as we know, he only did it for three people. And they died again. Somebody's pointed out that when he went to Lazarus' tomb, if you know the story, Lazarus has died. He's been dead for about four days. Jesus finally arrives in the town, goes to the tomb. He, he says, roll the stone away. So the tomb is opened up. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. Somebody's pointed out, if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, then all the tombs would have come out. I think that's true. But Jesus only meant to do it to Lazarus. Why was that? Because he wasn't trying to eradicate death from our world at that point. He was showing that he had defeated death. Did Jesus still every storm on the lake? No, he only did it once or maybe twice. Or maybe you think... Faith was the key. If if people had faith, Jesus always did it. If they didn't have faith, he couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. No. When the disciples were out on the storm uh, in their boat, Jesus actually says, you've got no faith. Yet he still stilled the storm. Faith was not the key. So what are they then? Well, the miracles of Jesus are two things. They're firstly, they're a sign of what is going on in the ministry of Jesus. They're a sign, a clear public demonstration That Satan is being defeated. The power of evil is being overcome. As you see the effects of evil in this world being reversed at the word of Jesus. They point to the fact that in the ministry of Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, the decisive victory over Satan, evil and death was happening. It happened historically in Jesus through his ministry. So they're a sign of what's going on in Jesus' ministry. Secondly, they're a sign of what the kingdom will be when it comes in its consummation. 
In that sense, their, their actions full of promise. Imagine that widow when a son is given back to her alive. Suddenly, her, her, her hopelessness turns to joy. Suddenly, her, her, her sorrow turns to celebration. In her life, for, a, for at least a season, death has been abolished. Well, that's what it will be like. That's a foretaste of what the age to come will be like. When the kingdom comes in its consummation, there will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. There'll be no more evil, nothing to fear any longer. And Jesus says, look at what I'm doing. They tell you that it's going to come. Just like that person eating their cutlet tells you, lunch is coming. And when the New Testament declares Jesus is Lord, that's the common uh, proclamation of the gospel through the New Testament after Jesus. They're not simply saying a, a subjective thing. Some people acknowledge Jesus to be their Lord. It's an objective reality they're talking about. Jesus has conquered all his enemies. He is now the undisputed Lord of the universe. Many may refuse to acknowledge it, but that doesn't alter the reality. He is Lord. And so to continue in rebellion against him is just dumb, isn't it? He's already put down the rebellion. Do you think you can succeed? Uh, Let me give you another illustration. This comes from history. Any of you history buffs? Do you know anything? Anybody heard of the Second World War? <laughs> okay, you know some history. You probably know that in Europe, the defeat of the, uh, the Axis, the, um, uh, Hitler and his troops, happened in two main phases. D-Day, the invasion of Normandy from Britain, and then V-Day, when Hitler uh, at Berlin finally falls to the Allied forces. Well, on the 6th of June 1944 was D-Day. The Allied flag... Is, is, is planted in Axis territory. Troops are pouring up the beaches of Normandy. Enemy strongholds are falling. Radios are crackling, announcing liberty to the occupied, calling on the enemy to lay down their arms. Well, that was like Jesus' beginning of his ministry, his original kingdom proclamation and healing. The flag of the kingdom is flying. Demons are being expelled. The sick are being healed. The poor are being gathered and reunited with their God. But... In the Second World War, D-Day provokes a counterattack, And the question is still up in the air for quite a while. Who will finally rule the world? That question is not decided until Berlin falls and Hitler is dead. That's V-Day. Well, that is like Jesus' final battle with the powers of darkness on the cross, where the New Testament makes clear Satan was irreversibly defeated. The place of humans in God's kingdom was secured and a hole was punched in the wall of death. Now, at that point, things have decisively changed. As far as World War II goes, the war was won, but the war was not finished. Now, the news of that kingdom of the Allied powers must be carried to every town and hamlet of the world. because many people don't know about it. Many people still were part of the rebellion, if you like, part of the Axis forces, still believing in that kingdom. So news of the kingdom, the allied powers, needs to go to them. It'll focus on the great victory that had just been won, not on the landing in Normandy on on D-Day. But now, however, it's not the outcome of the war and the existence of a new government that's at stake, but the destiny of each person to whom the news comes. Will they surrender or destroy themselves in senseless and futile opposition? That's what has come about through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the benefits of his victory and rule 
are open to all. Anybody who will come, repent of their rebellion, trust in him for forgiveness. And even now, they, they, uh, we benefit from many of uh, the effects of his victory. We already have forgiveness. The decision of the final day, of the day of judgment, is brought forward into our lives. God says, you are right with me today. He gives us his spirit who rebirths us to live differently, to give us a power to live with Jesus as our king. And that means the future is secured. The destiny of the universe has been determined. The kingdom has arrived with Jesus. Therefore, the kingdom in its fullness will come. And our place in resurrection and the age to come. Already glimpsed and experienced as people were were set free from the things that overpowered them in the time of Jesus. So we too know that we will finally be released, liberated from all the effects of evil. The promise of God's kingdom is not simply Jesus saying, trust me, it's going to come, but it must come because it's already come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that when he came announcing the kingdom, it wasn't just talk. There was the decisive action he took for us to die for us, to rise again, to win a victory that we can benefit from. Father, please help us to know with a certainty that the destiny of the universe has changed. Please welcome us into your kingdom to be part of that new age that Jesus has brought. In his name we pray. Amen.